question the voices arise and I hear is an SP sponsored podcast. Good morning, Mercedes. Good morning. I get, well, now it's officially four minutes after morning where you are. It's oh, still that's true. Meeting. So, so we're in that Thank hybrid you. morning, non-morning. I love right what, now. I love when you recognize central time. It just, I hate you know, central time. It is the bane of my existence and I will never perform. <laughs> so what are you, you're in PA, so you're, you're not, you're Eastern. I'm Eastern. Where are you, Mercedes? I'm in Chicago. Ah. Probably Central Time. (laughs) So I despise Central Time because I will always set up meetings and forget that Central Time exists in general. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I'm Mercedes Landazri. And I'm Lindsay Neville. And with our powers combined, we are... Plastics. The voices (laughs) of resin. (laughs) Well, I was just going to say, we release our podcast the first Friday of every month. I think I'm just jumping in on your lines this morning because I'm just feeling, I don't know, eager, excited. It's a rainy day. Again um, with the morning. Again with the morning. It's not morning. It's whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, and you can listen to our podcast first Friday of every month. Or you can watch the YouTube version of it, which is usually released a couple weeks after, just in case you want to see the uh, frustration on my face when I realize that it is not still morning time in my time zone. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But you can listen to our podcast anywhere that you get podcasts. Uh, You got the, was it Spotify, Google, Apple Apple Podcasts, all all the usuals or the YouTube podcast places all the podcast places and and in our podcast we talk with people who work in the plastics industry or plastics industry adjacent um are just a big fan we have a very nice guest today and i'm I'm not even sure um if our guest which time zone our guest is in is it still morning for you it is not i'm eastern time zone as well i am in atlanta Eastern time zone. (laughs) Well, this morning we have Mitch Reif. Um, He's the engineering manager for additive manufacturing at Delta Tech Ops. So welcome, Mitch. Thanks for joining us on our uh, delightfully chaotic uh, podcast. (laughs) Thank you very much. I believe, Mitch, though, even though you are in Eastern time zone now, I believe you are a native uh, central timer. I am. Correct? Can you tell in my voice? <laughs> <laughs> I did a little I, research on you, and I saw that you were were had been one of one of my neighbors to the north over here. Yeah, I grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. A huge Green Bay Packers fan, though, because I am on the western side of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. If you're on the eastern side, then you're a. Most people are Detroit Lions fans, which I feel sorry for them for the last many, many, Always. many years. Yeah, Upper Peninsula, of Michigan. Then uh, lived my first job in aerospace was in Peshtigo, Wisconsin which is just across the border from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. So, Mitch, can you can you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, we, we kind of touched on the fact that you are a Midwesterner at heart and start, but can you tell us um, about how you got into aerospace, how you got into additive manufacturing? Uh, so, really, uh, aerospace was kind of just a just kind of happened. Um, I was a machinist. I started out as a machinist. Um, I took a job for a small uh, aerospace interiors company in Peshtigo, Wisconsin, as a, a CNC machinist and programmer and set up. Um, back then, it was called ERTA. We did uh, 
designed and manufactured aircraft seats for VIP, which is uh, really like the so Falcon Jet, Gulfstream, uh, Cessna, um, larger business jets, but uh, really more for the private sector, not commercial aviation. When I started, there was some 3D printing. Um, we didn't have it in house. It was hugely expensive, but we did some externally uh, when we would develop prototypes. So it kind of fascinated me because uh, I also designed as well. I'm, I've always been a maker and I would design and it's like, how do I get this made faster? How do I understand if this is going to work more quickly? And going from a machinist, then I moved into engineering and then it was okay, from a design perspective, I need to know if this is going to work faster. Okay, you can do your typical manufacturing methods, and it just was never fast enough to, uh, in product development world, the faster you can fail and the faster you can iterate, the better off you are. Mm -hmm. And you studied machining and uh, in school, but where did you learn uh, 3D printing? Uh, so 3D printing was kind of just... Uh, I picked it up, uh, started, like I said, um, it would have been early 2000s. I started in 98. I moved into engineering in the early 2000s. And the first printing, uh, we printed shrouds for, uh, for a, basically it was a prototype aircraft seat. And we needed to do all the shrouding and everything for it. So that was all done SLA. And that was back when, you know, there was only SLA and FDM. And only you had big players like 3D Systems and Stratasys were really the only players in the market. And it just fascinated me. So uh, I started getting a little more into FDM printing initially because it was really the easier to get into. And be, as a machinist, it's all G-code. It's all, you know, programming and 3D printing. It's all G-code, G&M code. So it's very similar with regard to one is subtracting material and then 3D printing is adding material. So it's not in terms of the process. Yes, it's the opposite, but the thought process is very similar. So I was going to ask you about that, you know, going from a very subtractive to literally an additive process. Do you have to retrain the way your brain thinks about production or, you know, manufacturing of the part? Not really. For me, maybe for others, but I don't think so. I, I Most machinists that I talk to, a lot of machinists that I know have 3D printers at home. Um, I think it's really just a, a, another tool in the toolbox, and it's a, it's a powerful tool, especially if you're working, you know, like I have a home machine shop and home additive shop, and uh, I may end up machining parts for a customer, but... Initially, I may 3D print all of them just to, to get the idea across because usually I end up being the person that they, they send me an idea or we talk about an idea. It's on a piece of paper and then turn it into 3D CAD, then turn it into 3D prints and then go to traditional manufacturing if that's what it needs. Hmm. I feel like people kind of think they need to choose one method or the other, like whether you're machining parts or like printing parts. And I feel like you know, what you're displaying is kind of this like beautiful back and forth that um, I feel like gets missed a lot, at least maybe in injection molding. I feel like, you know, we see it as like, we're going to machine this or we're going to, you know, maybe make a prototype out of 3D printing, but I don't see that um, that relationship come as far as I feel like what you're describing. Or do you see other people leaning one way or the other when you're kind of talking about designing a new part and the product development part of it? Yeah, so... 
from a prototyping perspective, everybody's always fine with 3D printing. Right. But from a production perspective, I tend to get pushback from people who don't understand basically the 3D printing process, what the material, the materials are today, you know, as compared to, you know, years ago, or they may have seen, you see a lot of people just printing like figurines and, you know, little things where you, there's materials, very high engineering grade materials that can be utilized that people just don't understand are there or exist. So it's really about about teaching that along the way. Uh, people who aren't into 3D printing always think of it as kind of a, a toy, something just a prototype versus production. But uh, that's where uh, I come in and kind of explain this is what we can do with 3D printing, how we would do it with 3D printing. What So one customer I have, I, I do light bezels for, custom light bezels. And this is my personal business. And because he only needs a couple hundred here and there, it doesn't make sense to injection mold them. Mm-hmm. And once again, it's a light bezel. It's not, it, it's, and then the light that it's actually going on is an LED. So there's no heat from this light. So it's not a concern. So really I'm looking at, um, I don't want it to weather over time in terms of, you know, yellowing. So go with the material that's um, UV resistant, is flexible, light, and he pops those in and calls it a day. Yeah, so it's so much and, easier. <laughs> yeah, it's it's much, much easier. Now, if he was doing thousands of them, then injection molding would be a better route. And mm-hmm. the nice thing was is that uh, working with this customer, I was able to go through design everything. It's all in 3D CAD. It's all 3D printable, but I have it all set up parametrically where if he ever decided he wanted to injection mold, I can throw the draft on, send it out for bid, and there we go. Well, see, that's that is something I feel like a lot of people also miss. You know, in the uh, the moving from three D printing into injection molding, you know, a lot of people will, you know, separate the two, and then we see stuff coming in as you know, oh, well, I had this, you know, three D printed, it's fine. But hearing like that, you have it set up for the next step in the process already with that in mind is like. It's such a myth sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. adds to the process. <laughs> right, you have to think about where your lifter is going to be, where's your screw going to be, um, <laughs> you know, where your ejector pin is going to be. Um, and if you think about all that ahead of time, you could design it for three D printing, but be ready to go straight to injection molding if it ever occurs. Where are my slides going to be, and how many slides am I going to have? How much is this tool probably going to cost? Right. Oh, I was just going to say, um, Mitch, let's get back to um, your work with Delta. Um, can you tell us uh, the advantage of working for Delta Flight Products and being involved with innovation for the airline instead of working for the broader scope? So I did switch. Um, I'm now at Delta Tech Ops, Delta Airlines. I still mm-hmm. work with Delta Flight Products a lot. I, I started at Delta Flight Products, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Delta Airlines, but it's separate, more of an innovation house, um, more production where Delta Airlines flies planes, fixes planes, you know, maintains the planes. Uh, Delta Flight Products uh, creates products for uh, the aircraft interior, uh, whether that be in-flight entertainment, whether that be uh, monuments, um, whether that be uh, something we'll talk about in the near term with the uh, PRM accessible seat. You know, that is really what Delta Flight Products does beautifully. Um, and here at Delta Airlines, Delta Tech Ops, it's maintaining and flying the planes. 
here at, at Delta Tech Ops, what uh, what I like kind of moving back a little bit out of out of the scope because it's for the airline side is we um, do a lot of 3D printing internally. It's not necessarily parts for the aircraft yet. Um, we have done a few, but uh, the majority of what we do is really to support the operation, the mechanics on the floor, working on the aircraft, working on the engines. You know, they need special tooling that, you know, if they go out and buy it or had somebody else make it, it may be, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, we have parts on the shop floor that move around that are, you know, anywhere from $5,000 to $250,000 parts. You know, an engine costs millions and millions of dollars. And those parts, we do part protection for those. So as they're moving around the shop, we print a ton of TPU parts to protect. And you mentioned uh, that, that, was, that was super surprising to me that it was so much TPU. I, I think it. Me, I would not have thought there was so much TPU, and I'm sure the average, you know, non-additive manufacturing person definitely doesn't expect TPU to be printed as often as yeah. you Because a lot of times what we're, so we're protecting things during movement, but there's, there's not, you're not protecting thousands of things. You know, you may have this engine component, you may have 20 of them in the shop. Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't make sense necessarily to tool up and pour, do let's say a silicone pour or a rubber pour, for 20 parts and and depending on the engines we may only do 20 of those parts a year and it's it, once again additive just makes it so much easier and tpu is the perfect medium uh in terms of a protection perspective and also uh think about it from a um you know the shore hardness tpu okay it's 95a let's say or it's 74d or whatever it might be but depending on the infill that i put in and how many walls i put on it i can change that mm -hmm. the material itself if it's if it's printed solid yes that's the shore hardness but if i print a certain thickness with an interior infill i can change that and make it very very soft or i can oh, make it very very rigid very cool so uh, we do it for part protection we also do it for physical protection there's big fixtures all over the shop that mechanics are working with where you know, just like your refrigerator door, you open up your freezer and then you go in your refrigerator and then you stand up and you hit your head on the freezer door that you forgot you had open that you uh, or the cupboards. Uh, you know, we do the same thing with fixtures and stuff here that that could happen and we'll print, you know, safety or protection out of uh, TPU so that people aren't, uh, you know, hitting their heads and then going to the hospital. You know, I'm as most people know, I have four boys and my second oldest had two head injuries this week, completely unrelated. And um, I'm thinking I need myself a, a printer. Yeah. Printing I have TPU protection have, around here. I have a spool sitting right over here. Like, <laughs> send me some dimensions. Then, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, some, some corner covers. We need some toy box covers. I mean, <laughs> So um, I'll I'm gonna I'll back up a little and we're we're going tangent all over the place, but that's, um, that's how we do. <laughs> so it was a little over two years ago that um, I was asked, "Hey, would you be interested in coming to run uh, or manage the 3D printing lab at Delta Tech Ops?" I was at full time Delta Flight Products. Uh, I was engineering manager of product development there, and I said. Because they knew I had uh, a lot of background in 3D printing. Um, like I said, I have my own 3D printing lab at home. I can go through the whole list of printers I have at home because you start buying them and um, <laughs> pretty soon you don't stop. And 
they're everywhere. <laughs> I get it. I but <laughs> so initially, the the lab uh, the here at TechOp started in 2016, and the initial focus was on metals, and rightfully so. I mean, engine maintenance. You think, okay, how can I make engine components? Now that's been very difficult because there are a lot of regulations in place when it comes to uh, engine components, which there should because you're talking safety of flight, um, a lot of passengers on a plane. Uh, as we know, flying is still the safest way to travel, and there's a reason for that. So that was worked on for four years, um, looking at how we could 3D print engine components um, out of metal. So, you know, a laser powder bed fusion. It was a good exercise, but uh, it didn't, in the end, really bring an engine component to life, let's say. So during then COVID hit, um, as we all know, and Delta had put a, a a package together people who wanted to leave nobody was ever one thing that was great about delta um nobody was let go nobody was furloughed but there was voluntary retirement packages that occurred um and people took those um especially we have a lot of people that have been here a long time you'd be surprised how i can walk down the floor and every every five person or fifth person that i run into has probably been here for 20 years or more the lead in our shop has been here for 42 years um, so a lot of people 42 years a lot of people come to Delta and stay to Delta because the culture is, it's always people first. It's always safety first. It's an unbelievable culture. I've never experienced it before. But often, uh, anyway, many people left. So they needed, uh, they asked if I, would, if I would come and look at the shop and see what can we do? Is there something different we can do? And when I came in, there was uh, Stratasys, um, uh, Fortis 450, two Ultimakers, Azure Tracks. Never heard of that one. It uh, sounds like a villain. <laughs> it, it's uh, it's a it's made in Poland. Um, I'm not a fan. Some <laughs> people are. Um, it broke. I think the first week I was here, and uh, um, I donated it to Delta Flight Products, and uh, <laughs> they got it running again. But uh, we ended up. I said, "Why aren't we printing tooling? Why aren't we printing fixtures? Why aren't we printing part protection? We do sandblasting, shot peening. You know, there's." fixtures all over the shop that are, are uh you know protrusions of metal and you know I, you know some places you got to wear bump caps but some places you don't and just a a plethora of things that could potentially 3d printing could solve i mean a lot of low-hanging fruit so that was the direction uh, i brought my principal engineer from delta flight products over and then we had another gentleman that was already still here he stayed he was a mechanic, but he got into 3D scanning and 3D printing on the side, and he was in doing a lot of the design work. And so anyway, we started a campaign. It was an marketing, internal marketing campaign of 3D printing. What can we do? How can we help you? Come to us with any and every idea. And we set up a, a smart sheet uh, form. We did some basically uh, meeting with engineers, meeting with mechanics to talk about 3D printing and what it could do, showing examples. Um, so then people started coming in. Uh, when we started in here, there was five projects per month. We are now, we range anywhere from 80 to 120 projects per month. And that's not parts, that's pro separate projects. And you have a fairly small team for the amount of work you're putting out, right? We have three, well, it's myself, and then I have two engineers. Then we have three AMT uh, tool design technicians. But, you know, they're 3D CAD, setting up the 3D printers, so on. So let's see, there's 
one, two, three, four, five people designing and setting up printers. And then there are uh, two people that are uh, our lead and Shane, our mechanic, another mechanic that uh, sets up our metal machines and also does post-processing. We have a small mill, lathe, uh, shot blast, you know, um, sandblasting and glass bead, vibratory finish, so on that we can post-process at least somewhat metal 3D print. That's our team and it's uh, a lot of printing. We're also getting in, just bought a, uh, a pressure former, a small, it's the Mayu. It's a small pressure former. Basically, some of the covers we make are, are simply very thin just to protect something. And we may have to do 100 of those. Uh, it doesn't make sense to print 100 <laughs> of something that is TPU, but it doesn't necessarily need to be TPU, but it needs to be flexible material. Well, it takes, you know, let's say it takes six hours to print one. Well, we, in that six hours, we could have pressure formed or vacuum formed all of them. Right. So once again, what makes sense for 3D printing and when does that volume get to a point where a more traditional manufacturing method makes sense? Yeah. Same thing, silicone molding. We do a lot of plasma spray here, which is very, it's a high heat process um, where we'll uh, design and print tools that then we're pouring silicone. And the final part is a silicone part because of the heat. Uh, other times we'll actually 3D print those parts out of Altem for the high heat because the geometry just requires something that's a little more rigid. So then we'll use like an Altem 9085 or an Altem 1010, even uh, uh, high temperature nylons, uh, depending on depending on what it is or where it is. Very cool. So um, I heard that you worked on a wheelchair accessible row. Can you talk about that project and the importance of equity when designing an airplane interior? Yeah, so um, this was a this was really fun. So product development, it's um, uh, we'll go here. It was 2021. I want to say January or February of 21. So we're still in the throes of COVID, obviously, trying to figure out Delta Flight products, a product company, you know, making aircraft interior products, and nobody's really flying. So we're looking at you know other ways we can, you know, help the airline, but also. From a product perspective, other things we could do. Our president, Rick Salonitri, walked into my office and he said, hey, I got a call from this gentleman, Chris Wood, for Flying Disabled. And he's talking about a wheelchair accessible seat. And I'm like, okay. He said, well, talk to him and see what you think. Let me know. So I talked to him. I gave him a call. He's over in the UK. And he he has his, both of his children are in wheelchairs. And, you know, and he's got a, nonprofit called Flying Disabled that he's been basically spearheading and really working with the industry, many industries, but especially aviation, because access for the disabled in aviation is difficult. There are some rules in place, but the equity isn't there. There's reasons for that. And then, but, you know, over time, you need to work on those types of things. You need to find how do we, uh, how do, how do we as an industry make flight more accessible to everybody. Anyway, he had a good idea. He had been working with a design firm in England as well called Priestman Good. Also one of their, basically a certification house called SWS certification. They were kind of their own little, they started their own consortium and it was called Air For All. Mm -hmm. And Priestman Good had worked with Chris to kind of design a, a seat that could basically be uh, a person could come in on their own Power wheelchair, 
Uh, we we kind of focused on power, or they had focused on power initially, and I'll kind of talk about the reasons for that. But they had done kind of the uh, industrial design. So the, how would it look? How would it, you know, function just from a, and how would it look in the aircraft? And a lot of the idea side there, what they came to us for was the engineering and the manufacturing side and understanding the certification qualifications that you have to go through to put something on an aircraft. So it, it, great conversations started off slow, like anything else would. But then we really started getting into it. And I talked to our president, Rick Salonitri, about it. He was like, yeah, this is something we really need to, to look at doing and see where it can go. So I said, all right. And we, we started down that path. And we ended up designing a prototype for that seat that went to uh, the Aircraft Interior Expo in Hamburg, Germany this path, this year. And a fully functional prototype, not something you could put on the plane. But basically, it's a seat that the inboard passenger uh, seat pan folds up. You take the cushions off, it folds up. It's on what's called, we call it a plinth, but think about it like a. it's on the floor. It's a pallet that has the belts in it that then attach to the wheelchair, um, just like it would in a bus or a train or anything else, basically to hold it in place. That locks it down. Now, one thing, and this is where you kind of think about, you know, how do we make this work to really make the experience equitable or uh, the same experience for somebody in a wheelchair as it is for uh, somebody who's not. We want that experience, that flying experience, at least when you're in this, there sitting as a passenger, to be the same. So a couple things we did when that seat pan folds up, the armrest actually raises up and moves forward because inside that armrest is a tray table. So if you're going to get something, you to eat or drink or whatever it is, you know, every passenger has a tray table. With the wheelchair there, the tray table, the wheelchair arms set up higher. Hmm. So the tray table couldn't be utilized unless we were to have that actually lift up and move forward. Now, one thing to let you guys know, some a lot of people probably don't know, is aircraft seats get test, crash tested. They actually go down a sled with an ATD like, an, like a car has, a crash test dummy in it at 16 Gs. Really? And it has to go through rigorous testing. The other thing with that as well, when this wheelchair and that occupant are on board and they're actually locked in, that has to withstand 16 Gs with regard to what we call item of mass retention. So let's say that wheelchair weighs, wheelchair and occupant is 500 pounds or 600 pounds. We have to prove that that, that's all going to stay in place during a 16 G crash. So it can't go flying you know, out, obviously there's a person in, so it can't go flying out, but it has to at 16 G. So that weight times 16, and it's going to have to stay in place and not go anywhere. Wow. Um, and that's, so there's a lot of engineering that goes into that, all those mechanisms, everything else, nothing can come flying off the seat. It can deform, but it can't break. Anyway, there's a lot that goes into that, but we, once we went to Hamburg and the seat was shown um, and it got a lot of attention and a lot of people interested in it and rightfully so I mean it's it's you know we need to do more of this in aviation and get make it like I said more equitable one one problem big problem that passengers with and you can look this up in the you know there's articles all over the internet of people's wheelchairs being damaged because 
they get put in a cargo hold. That cargo hold, most cargo holds aren't big enough, tall enough for a powered wheelchair to sit straight up. So they actually have to be laid on their side. And as we know, turbulence, everything else, things aren't locked down properly, they'll break. And a lot of these powered wheelchairs are customized to that individual and their disability. And if that breaks and they get to the end of their journey and their wheelchair is broken, I mean, in speaking to a number of, of people, I mean, those that wheelchair is their legs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now it's gotten damaged. Now, the only thing the airline can do is is get a different wheelchair for that person, but that will that wheelchair they get them may not be the same type and they, maybe they're left-handed not right-handed so the controls are on the wrong side maybe they have other issues where they have very special cushions in their seat that they no longer have all of these things can be you know detrimental to that individual it's devastating um, it would just yeah you can't even imagine right so this is uh We've been working on this now for a few years. It's gotten the next round of funding to continue it. We're looking at early next year going into certification. Uh, that'll take the majority of all of next year certifying it. But uh, I feel, you know, at any point this could could fail. There could be a problem with the certification. There could be a problem with installation. But I feel that in talking with regulators, um, in talking with DOT, um, I think there's ways around this that this will someday be on an aircraft and really help. There's also the the, the push for PRM accessible laboratories where an individual can uh, right now think about how does somebody in a wheelchair, you know, they're put into a seat, but they can't. Right. Put, right. Currently, that what happens is a person is taken out of their wheelchair and put into a wheelchair that can go onto the aircraft and then they're lifted and put into a seat. And then that wheelchair is stowed. It has to actually go into a compartment in the aircraft. It's a very small wheelchair. Now, what if that person has to go to the bathroom? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's so much pressure on that person. And it's so much pressure, like, you know, is my wheelchair going to make it just fine? And did I have too much coffee or not enough coffee for today or whatever? That's, I mean, that just makes me itchy thinking about, if I, that right. was a scenario. <laughs> and it's things that I I didn't think about either until I talked to Chris. And, you know, like I said, his children, both of his children are in wheelchairs. And, and understanding what a person in a wheelchair, what they have to go through to try to travel is just, uh, it, it's, I couldn't imagine having to go through that experience. Uh, many people I've, I've spoken to, they'll actually dehydrate themselves prior to flying. Oh, which is terrible because you're already like, I feel like I'm the person that when I fly, I'm like, I need like extra bottles of water, all this, because I feel like I get dehydrated and, you know, headaches and the whole works. And you I do a couple imagine- Bloody Marys before the flight at the airport it, bar. It, Bloody Marys may or may not have something to do with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like to have to like actively think about going the opposite way, that's so, that's heartbreaking. Right. And yeah. yeah it is. It is. It, it, it was absolutely heartbreaking um, listening to the stories and, and really understanding what what people have to go through that are in wheelchairs or with other disabilities go through that. You just, we just don't even think about. And that's it. And I think as a as a population, we don't think about it. Mm-hmm. I, I think people care about it, but it's just not a thought they have in their day to day lives. And I think putting more attention and focus on it is is I've learned a lot. People around me have learned a lot, and uh, Delta has been wonderful 
you know, funding this to do this work. Yeah, I think that's I think that's incredible. And the fact that, you know, Delta standing up to say, like, here's this big, you know, equity piece that we are missing. Let's let's take some serious action and, you know, create the prototype and get all the certifications. And, you know, I feel like sometimes some of these things not talking about Delta, but in general, we see things that are like, oh, here's for, you know, here's this new product. It's going to improve, you know, X. And it's more of a display or more of a theoretically, this would be great. See you later. (laughs) Um, And, you know, hearing that this is, it's not just for display. It's not just to, you know, prove out the theoretics. It's to actually become, you know, the goal is to become part of the builds. I think that's, I think that's amazing. Yeah, it's been, it's been a great project to work on. And even though I'm at Delta Tech Ops full time now, I still, um, and, ver- and very close to my team over at Delta Flight Products, very close with with Rick and others there that uh, are are just keeping this going. And I just lend my, because uh, I have a lot of seating experience, lend my experience where needed. Yeah. Uh, and 3D printing comes into that and a ton of prototyping. The seat that we uh, we sent to Hamburg, a lot of it was 3D printed. Now, the main structure was machined, but like the center console that moved up and down and everything else, the majority of all that was 3D printed. The original shrouding that went on the back of the seat was all printed on a, a mass of it 3D printer. So it's like a paste. <clears throat> so we went to a prop house. We're in Atlanta. We're in Georgia. There's a lot of film industry here, a lot of prop making. So my lead engineer on the project there, Sean Lopes, he went out and started talking with uh, different prop houses on how we could get this rear shroud made so that it would look exactly like it needed to look. It would function exactly the way it needed to function. Now, yes, it can't go on an aircraft, but we need to convey right. what is this really going to look like? How is it really going to function? How is it, you know, and make it as realistic as possible. Now the end result, what we ended up doing was actually machining the entire rear shroud out of what's called Renwood and did that on a five axis CNC router Um, because the design needed to change a little bit. We didn't have time to get back to printing it and all of those type of things were internal at Delta Flight products. So it was able to be done very quickly, but the initial prototype fit form and function uh, even painted was all done on a massive it 3D printer. And then uh, sanded smooth and and painted and and was fully functional. So cool. And you know, you're talking about some of these different types of printers and you know this paste. And I know you and I touched on this a little bit, but like talking about some of the materials that are you know chosen. I know you said sometimes different companies will kind of select their own. We we're specifically talking nylons. Whether you choose nylon twelve, nylon eleven. Uh, what what materials do you typically need to use in a project? Are you bound by the industry or is it dependent on you're doing prototyping? You can pick whatever you want. How do you select a material to go into these new projects? So prototyping obviously is very open to materials. Are you really looking at uh, when you're prototyping like for the seat, it's going to be shipped over. When is it being shipped over? You have to think about temperature, things like that. But your typical PLAs, PETGs, ABS, any of those, for the most part, will work for a prototype. But when it comes to some of the parts we make actually go in an oven, they're fixtures that will go into an oven. 
So we'll actually use, let's say, a high temp nylon carbon fiber. It'll be a nylon 12 with 25% uh, carbon fiber. That's just basically a standard for the most part, 10 to 25%. And then what we'll do after is actually anneal that part. And that's taking it up near blast uh, transition temperature for X amount of time. Uh, typically, nylon, you'll take up to, I want to say, between 120 and 140 C for four hours and then let it cool down in that, you know, while it's in the oven, you let it cool down on its to room temperature on its own. And you can typically get anywhere from 20 to 40% more temperature resistance or heat deflect, your, your heat deflection temperature can go up. We'll do that for quite a few of our things we do internally. But when you're talking aerospace, this something's going on an aircraft, uh, it has to be flam resistant. It has to meet what's called 25853 compliance, which is in commercial terms would be like an UL 94V0. Uh, so what we'll do, depending on where it's at in the interior, it needs to meet a minimum of 12 second vertical burn. And in other cases, depending on how passenger facing it is, it has to also meet what it's called heat release requirements and smoke and toxicity. And where those things, where those are derived from is depending on where it is, uh, if there's a, if there's a fire on the aircraft, you need to be able to evacuate the aircraft in, in a certain amount of time. So what the FAA will do and other labs have done is actually started fires in aircraft to understand how they'll propagate through the plane, how those fumes could potentially toxic fumes knock out a passenger and they can't evacuate and then choose materials that will not create that toxic smoke or not propagate uh, the burn fast enough where it gives passengers the time to get out of the aircraft safely. That would be very fun testing. I'm just so, saying, not the actual uh, fire in an airplane if I'm in it, but the testing of it would be fun. So we, at Delta Flight Products, we have an FAA approved flammability lab that oh, does uh, vertical burn, heat release, smoke and tox. There's coupon sizes specific in the regulations for that. However, in some cases you have to burn the actual part because it may not, the part itself may be, may be so small that uh, a coupon isn't representative or yeah. especially when you're injection molding, if you're injection molding something, you're not going to injection mold a three by 12 coupon as well. Right. In some cases I've had to do that or we've had to do that, but there are uh, the regulations will allow you to actually burn the will to burn the actual component as well. But so we can do that. And we have done that at, uh, at Delta, utilizing Delta flight products as our flammability lab. Our um, uh, sophomore year, we did burn parts as part of our one of our labs. And I will say to this day, I do remember that polyethylene smells like birthday candles. And that's all my uh, flammability <laughs> facts I got. You'd be surprised the interior of an aircraft, what it has to go through. Cushions actually go, go through what's called an oil burn. It's actually, it, they've changed it now. It used to be kerosene, but it was it, it looked like a flamethrower uh, going at a cushion burning that cushion and during that burn that cushion can only lose a, a certain amount of uh, mass and the burn can only propagate so far across the cushion and if that doesn't uh if that fails then the cushion you can't utilize that cushion material so that's one reason on an aircraft if you say hey these cushions aren't that comfortable for the most part we can make them semi comfortable but we we're not allowed to use the same materials that you can use at home 
and and so it becomes very difficult to get the right buildups of, of and the right foams to utilize that aren't going to just catch on fire. That's the fair. other thing. I prefer the yeah. non the less flammable version. Yeah, I don't <laughs> feel like like air and like fire and like flying sitting in a fiery plane. No, yeah. that's not for me. So are you allowed to use like all the PFAS you want, unlike the rest of us? A lot of times, you know, they, they had been used for um, high temp, you know, resistance and, and. Okay. So the materials that we utilize mostly. So Stratasys was, a, here's one thing. Stratasys got in early working with and, and working with uh, Sabic on Altem 9085. And they helped to write the SAE documents for the polymers in aerospace and what the, basically I can buy certified grade uh, Altem 9085 from Stratasys um, that comes with the material certs, all the certifications for flammability rating with it. And as long as your machine is calibrated properly, um, all of that is done, you can uh, you can print parts out of that certified grade material that can then go on an aircraft. Non-structural, uh, the, we're talking about non-structural parts, uh, but they meet uh, heat release, smoke and tox, and flammability to basically put that material anywhere in a cap. That's uh, a lot of uh, Boeing prints, a lot of their uh, ducts, like you may have a, sh a weird shaped duct, obviously an aircraft you, you're crammed for space and you're ducting, air ducting that's up. It's gonna be behind your baggage, behind your side panels, all of that hidden, has to take weird turns and maybe you have flexible tubing that goes through there, but you have different junctions that you have to put some kind of uh, duct, some kind of joint to connect those hoses. A lot of that is printed out of Altem 9085 yeah. uh, by both Boeing and Airbus. And uh, we actually do that, uh, our cr a crew rest that Delta Flight Products makes, um, those ducts or connection points are also printed out of Altem 9085. Wow. Well, I will be taking a flight tomorrow and I will be thinking about that probably <laughs> the whole time, just envisioning what these 3D printed parts, these junctions might look like. Hidden yeah, away. it's and there and I know one of the questions you guys had, you know, do I see more 3D printing in uh, in the aircraft cabin in the future? Absolutely. There are a lot of components in the cabin that are non-structural. Think of. Uh, Here's just one quick one. Uh, flight attendants, I'm sure you've all seen them when they sit down mm -hmm. uh, right before you're going to take off. Flight attendants, you know, cross check and then, you know, please get ready for departure. They'll sit down and they'll grab the phone. Well, that phone is on a hook, just like you'd have your old phones at home. Those break all the time. And anything that says aerospace after it or aviation after it somehow becomes 10 times more expensive than anything you put in your house. Fair. 10 times is probably uh, being low. So those things can be very expensive, very long lead time. And, you know, if you can't get them from the OEM, meaning the original equipment manufacturer like a Boeing or Airbus, then how do you get that part? Uh, traditionally, it's injection molded. You know, uh, only one company out there, maybe two, have a tool for it. Maybe you only need 40 of those a year versus... You know, that's that's perfect volume for 3D printing. Um, one thing I had talked about, talked to Lindsay about, there's a company called Dimension. They'll actually dye, so SLS printing, so powder. 
So we have a P396 EOS that uh, is SLS, and we do print. We'll do nylon 12, nylon 11. Um, that's FR rated both. Uh, so Airbus has an FR rated nylon 12. Boeing has an FR rated nylon 11. Um, we can print a part with that, send it to a company called Dimension. They'll actually um, dye that part to match any Pantone that you want. It's about a six-week process. Then they make color packs. Um, if you had their equipment, we don't. But um, they'll actually make these color packs that they put in based on the volume of parts that they need to dye. Um, they'll dye those parts. They'll finish those parts. Those parts will come back looking exactly like what you wanted them to look like. Now, the caveat is whatever the powder color is does play a role in that. So if the powder's, if the powder's gray, you're not going to get a white part. Um, but luckily, the FR powder that both Airbus and Boeing use is a kind of an off-white. So you can dye it to most any color. So they'll they'll also seal it. So as we know with FDM, it's the same with SLS. It's got a porous finish to it. You don't think that with FDM, but it is. If you most FDM parts, if you submerge them in water, they're going to fill with water over time. Mm-hmm. What uh, Dimension does, and there's other companies that do it as well, um, they'll actually do what's called a vapor seal. So it actually completely solidifies the surface, which makes it a more scratch resistant, but also makes it resistant to water completely. Uh, which comes into play if you were, let's say, going to do something that was a food contact surface in an aircraft. We've actually done Altem uh, 1010, which is food grade, FDA approved, printed it on an FDM printer and had worked with them to actually have them vapor finish it so that it's completely, there is no more pores in the material, it's completely sealed so no bacteria can grow. It can be wiped off, cleaned. You don't have to worry about bacteria getting into pores and, and growing. Probably cleaner than most uh, airline surfaces that we are touching on a regular basis. <laughs> I will say cleaning on the aircraft since COVID has gotten extreme. You should never worry about touching anything in an aircraft anymore. Well, that's good because my kids are typically licking it. So we're, <laughs> we're already down that rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, boy. I hope. Yeah, I'm glad that my flight is before your South Carolina flight, Lindsay. Just to, there's no oh, chance of me. Don't so. worry. We're driving. <laughs> I don't think airlines can handle okay. all six of us just yet. <laughs> Well, if you hopefully you're flying Delta because uh, we have a global clean team that actually all they all they concentrate on is how to how to keep the cabin clean in between flights. How do we clean it, make clean it cleanest and safest for our passengers in between every single flight? We have a whole team that that's what they do. Wonderful. Now you can lick the seats too, Mercedes. Yes. (laughs) I don't recommend it, but. Yeah, I fully intend. <laughs> well, I think we're about out of time today. Um, but Mitch, uh, Ray, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, yeah, I, I apologize. I go all over the place. You, <laughs> when you sent me the email, it was, you know, tangent everything. I'm tangent everything. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate it. This has been a, a fascinating call. And I think there's easily like 15 things that we could have uh, dove deeper into that my mind is already like, spinning on so <laughs> well if there's any uh questions that come out of it things we can do a follow-up and or i you can send me questions and i can reply you know anything like that because i'm sure there could be 10 million questions that come out of this 
always. <laughs> I'll do my best to, to help answer them if I can. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mitch. So much. All right. Well, thank you, guys. It was great meeting you guys. Nice meeting great you. Great talking to you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Plastics. New episodes appear on the first Friday of every month. So either follow or subscribe to get those new episodes ASAP. Plastics, the Voices of Resin, is a plastics podcast sponsored by SPE, Inspiring Plastics Professionals. If you want to find out more about SPE, please visit for like the number, spe.org. Oh, plastics.